Talking History on News Talk. Good evening and welcome. We're Talking History on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, re examining the most sensational and intriguing murders from across the United States, the wartime diaries of Winston Churchill's daughter, the last stand of the rebels in Wexford during the 1798 rebellion, developing rural Ireland in the 20th century, and to end the show will be illuminating natural history through the life and art of an 18th century naturalist. But first, we'll begin with murder maps of the USA. Talking History, history on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. The most sensational and intriguing murders from across the United States are re-examined in a new volume, which introduces readers to the most lethal killers from every state, from the Black Widow to Bonnie and Clyde. The book is called Murder Maps USA, Crime Scenes Revisited, Bloodstains to Ballistics. It's published in hardback by Thames and Hudson. The author is Adam Seltzer. And Adam, you're very welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. There are some wonderful uh, cases here and uh, th- you've got the, the floor plan, you've got the, the, the movements of the killer and, and the victim, you've got the technology of the time in terms of crime scene photographs and mugshots and so on. And I suppose that brings me to the thing that really struck me, that this was a period when the technology was changing in terms of how crimes were investigated, in terms of having things like fingerprints being used and having FBI laboratories and so on. Right. That was just starting to evolve. And in the United States, they didn't use fingerprints in a case uh, officially until 1910. And even at the time, there was still the, the job of a police officer was to get a hunch and then do whatever it took to prove it, not necessarily to prove what really happened. They didn't necessarily have the technology for that. Uh, beating a confession out of somebody was still considered perfectly acceptable. Why did some of these murders become not only well-known in the United States, but known around the world. Is it because they were turned into pulp stories and movies? Uh, or was it something about the crime itself that captured the imagination? Oh, Almost invariably, it's because somebody retold it later on. There are, there are plenty of stories in this book that I don't think have really been retold more than once or twice since they happened, if that. Uh, but some of them are just as interesting. I mean, we, everybody knows about the Jack the Ripper murders. There are plenty of murders from the same era that are really just as fascinating, but nobody ever made a movie out of them. Nobody retold them in a pulp writing 20 years later, so they just kind of fall through the cracks. So what would be your favourite stories then of the, the cases that did fall through the cracks? Which ones perhaps should be better remembered? Oh, there's a few of them. I'm trying not to get, I'm trying to, trying to overlap with what's in the book. <laughs> well, one of my favourite is Minnie Wallace who was uh, operating in Kansas, New Orleans, and Chicago. She was 15 years old when she married the former mayor of Emporia, Kansas, who was 48. And about a week after the wedding, he died of arsenic poisoning. And she was convicted. Frankly, I think it's absolutely certain that she did it. But you know what? When, you mar- when you're 48 and you talk a 15-year-old girl into marrying you and then she kills you and takes all your money, that's kind of on you. Uh, she proceeded to marry another guy here in Chicago who also died 12 days after he filled out his will. Uh, her story is just fascinating to me. It's been retold in a couple of books, but nothing that's really captured the popular imagination like, say, H.H. H. Holmes has. And what do you think uh, connects them all? And, and why were, you know, what, what led to so many of them being caught? Was it the detective work that was so brilliant? Was it the fact that you had uh, breakthroughs in forensics? Or was it just mistakes that the, the, the murderers made themselves? 
more often it would have been mistakes that the murderers made themselves, especially in the 19th century ones. And really, there's a lot of them where the murderer was never caught, where we don't really know exactly who it was, or they managed to get off through some kind of technicality. And a lot of times they were never really brought to trial. They were just shot down out in the frontier someplace. And what about the more famous ones then, when you have cases like uh, the bank robbers Bonnie and Clyde, which, of course, the name becomes synonymous then with with a, a pair of criminals because of the movie ver- adaptations and it becomes almost a shorthand for describing certain types of criminals right. that they become, I suppose the, the, the real story is forgotten about and it's the mythology that takes over. Right. In a lot of cases, the real story isn't even out there with these places. A lot of times what we consider, you know, if you see the movie and then go look them up online, what you'll find is really just retellings of uh, pulp and sources that were taken off of like one newspaper's coverage. Now, it's an interesting time right now because so many more things are being digitized. But I can find stuff about some of these people, like interviews with them, stuff like trial transcripts that would have required an awful lot of travel just to get my hands on before. But now more and more old newspapers have been digitized. A lot of trial records have been digitized. Uh, Research has gotten a lot easier, and that's changing the way that we think about any number of stories because – uh, even with the most famous ones, the ones that have been heavily researched, there have been a lot of sources that just fell through the cracks and where a lot of a lot of stories are just rehashing the same wrong information for years. Extraordinary. And because you were looking at murder cases from all across the United States, did you see a, a great variation then in the types of crimes? Because I suspect a murder in the, the Wild West would have been very different from something happening on the East Coast. or And then you have things happening in the inner cities, things happening in rural areas that you're really getting all different types of life and all different types of society. Oh, sure. Well, you see, the, the Wild West stuff is probably going to be different motivation, different method, and a different, uh, different attempts to hunt down the killer than you'd see in New York or Chicago at the time. And also, you're, you're much less likely out there to find people dying of just poisoning or something. And, and the hats people wore, of course, were different. And, and finally, Adam, did you, find it, uh, did you find it interesting and enjoyable researching it? Or did it actually become a bit heavy and gruesome when you were having to deal with so many uh, murders, so much uh, uh, blood and, and, and pretty <laughs> much so much of uh, uh, kind of, I suppose, the darker side of people's souls as well? All right. It's, it's a little bit of both. Uh, finding these stories and digging through the old archives, just trying to find any trace of them and finding out what we can about them is fascinating. Putting the puzzle together of what happened, what we know and what we don't is just endlessly fascinating for me. But when you're doing uh, something like a hundred different murder stories, it does get to be a little bit heavy. It kind of haunts your dreams after a while. Very good. Well, if people want to have their dreams further haunted, the book is called Murder Maps USA, Crime Scenes Revisited, Bloodstains to Ballistics. It's published in hardback by Thames and Hudson. The author is Adam Seltzer. And Adam, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Oh, thank you for having me. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. In 1939, 17-year-old Mary Churchill found herself in an extraordinary position at an extraordinary time. It was the outbreak of the Second World War and her father Winston had been appointed First Lord of the Admiralty. Within months, he would be Prime Minister. 
Mary's wartime diaries are full of colour, rich in historical insight and a charming and intimate portrait of life alongside Winston Churchill. And they've been compiled and edited by Mary's daughter Emma Soames in collaboration with the Churchill Archives Centre. The book is called Mary Churchill's War, the wartime diaries of Churchill's youngest daughter, published in hardback by Two Roads. The editor, as I say, Emma Soames. And Emma, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be with you. They do give us an extraordinary insight into what life was like during the Second World War for the daughter of the Prime Minister, an insight into Churchill as Prime Minister as well. Talk to us about your mother, Mary. Well, um, of course, you know, I came into her life after the war. I wasn't even a twinkle in her eye, as we say, um, at the time of this. But she was a remarkable woman. And... um, set a very high bar as a role model and went on. I mean, she had an extraordinary war, but she also went on to have an extraordinary life. She and my father, my father was made ambassador to Paris um, in 1968, and they had four years there, which was a huge success. And then um, later on, he was the last governor of Rhodesia, um, during changeover. So though that was quite a sort of interesting and very tense few months in Zimbabwe. And then after my father died, she built a life of her own. And she was, for instance, well, she wrote a lot. I mean, she wrote um, a very good life of her mother, Clementine. And also she went on to become uh, chairman of the National Theatre uh, which was an unlikely appointment, but one that she did very well. I think what's great about the diaries is you get this uh, honest insight into uh, what was happening in terms of the war or her travels with her father or even her own involvements when she joined the Auxiliary Territorial Service and had her had her, had her own career. Because I suppose nowadays... Uh, people write things for social media and they're writing it with the point of view of a wide audience reading it and they're they're censoring themselves or they're they're thinking about who's reading it whereas uh, these are uh, these are the reflections as she understood them and as she thought of them at the time absolutely and um, her diary she used um, to let off steam if you like um, about her love life Um, about her concerns about her father and her father's health particularly. Um, And it certainly certainly wasn't destined um, for a wider audience, except, of course, when she died, she left all her papers, including these diaries, to Churchill College, Cambridge, and now um, they've come into the public domain. Um, And they're a very interesting historical document. But it is the last, her generation are the last who, if they kept a diary, uh, they were keeping it for themselves and not for other people. People are fascinated by the wartime leadership of Winston Churchill. It's much studied. It's uh, it's it's even uh, appearing so often in in movies and television programs and so on. What? new insights do we get from the diaries of Mary, someone who saw her father close up and at times accompanied him on very significant diplomatic trips abroad, including uh, to Potsdam? Well, um, 
break your question down a little bit, I mean, the thing that I came away with, with in the early days of the war was the personal burden that she saw her father carrying and described very well in her diary. He really did have the cares of the world upon his shoulders. And much of what she was carrying, he couldn't share. He was the only person who knew everything, which in 1941 was mostly all very, very bad news. Um, so, and, and that, um, my mother didn't know it all, but she could see him um, shouldering it and trying to deal with it. So that was one thing. Um, the trips were completely fascinating. Potsdam, um, there was, of course, in the background music to Potsdam was the 1945 general election. And um, halfway through, my mother was his ADC at Potsdam, and halfway through the conference, she, uh, the, 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 the Churchill and his entourage had to fly home. And of course, you know, they thought they'd be back in a couple of days, but indeed they never came back. Um, and the Labour uh, Foreign Secretary um, returned to finish the, the, the business at Potsdam. So um, that was rather a turn up for the books, as my mother would have said. Um, and, and that was, as you can imagine, a very, very traumatic moment for Churchill because he'd given his all to the British people and it must have felt how it didn't feel like a slap on, slap on the face. I do not know, but he initially was much less upset about it than, for instance, my mother, who was in tears for days, and he took the line, the people have spoken. Finally, when we're growing up, we always think our parents are ancient, no matter what age they are, because we see them as as these wiser distant, uh, d different figures all grown up. But what's it like reading the diaries and studying the diaries of your mother as as a young woman and going through all these things? Did you recognise her? Did you see her as, as very much the same person you would have known uh, at a different time in her life? Um, partly, yes. I would have loved to have met her. I mean, she was very, very naive. She, she had a very sheltered um, childhood at Chartwell um, and when the diary is open you know she's 16 years old and has practically never been to London um, but she is very much the person I knew she had the most extraordinary moral compass my mother um, and actually she was a religious she was a woman of faith and that comes through in the diaries. And that was something that stayed with her all her life. And um, in a way, I could see shades of her childhood in the way she brought us up, um, uh, which was quite strict, actually. I mean, not painfully so, but, um, you know, she was very... She wasn't negligent, shall I put it that way. She was very on the case of bringing up her children. But she was a delightful woman and she was extremely charming. 
and um, she also one of the I love one of the funny things is her love life where she got into a frightful muddle um, with various gentlemen. Um, I mean, it was all very, very innocent, but um, she wasn't very sophisticated, shall I put it that way. Um, but um, she was the woman I knew, and um, it's, it is such a glorious uh, honour and privilege to be able to see one of your parents as a child, as a teenager, growing up. Very few people have that um, privilege. Well, Emma, congratulations on the book. And I think there's some wonderful insights here into uh, life in London during the Second World War and indeed insights into her father, Winston Churchill, your grandfather. The book is called Mary Churchill's War, the wartime diaries of Churchill's youngest daughter, published in hardback by Two Roads. The author, Emma Soames. And Emma, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you so much, Patrick. We'll be lovely talking about you. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. The Irish Agricultural Advisory Services helped transform rural Ireland and Irish agriculture in the 20th century. And a new book tells their story. The book is called Developing Rural Ireland, A History of the Irish Agricultural Advisory Services. It's published in hardback by Wordwell. And I'm delighted to welcome the author Michal O'Faherty back to the show tonight. Michal, you're very welcome. Thank you, Patrick, and thank you for hosting me. Can you tell us about, I I suppose it's a great way of getting an insight into rural Ireland and Irish agriculture. And I suppose it's something that very much is part of, I suppose it's crucial to understanding Ireland as well. Why do you think Irish agricultural history and rural history has perhaps been neglected for so long? I think, Patrick, without putting a fine tooth in it, it's not glamorous. Um, I think that's probably the, the heart of the problem. And it is, as you say, or you allude to, it's such a great pity because it is one of the primary ciphers for making sense of Irish history. Agriculture and rural life was the mainstay of history. And in, in, in the contemporary context, of course, it remains so important. So it's incumbent upon us as historians not to neglect agriculture and rural history. Yes, that is exactly what has happened. And, and maybe as well, what it also reflects is this strange relationship that we as Irish people and in the most general sense have with agriculture. Uh, We have obviously a strong connection to the land, yet at the same time, in many ways, we we resent and reject our our peasant inheritance. So I think that's also contributing to to why uh, agriculture and rural history has been overlooked. Well, talk to us about these uh, services then that were provided. And it seems that you had this brilliant, brilliant setup where these agricultural experts, these instructors were being sent out to every community in rural Ireland. So they were getting the best of of not just Irish expertise, but international expertise as well. Yes, indeed. I mean, when the service was instituted at the beginning of the 20th century, it was the most cutting edge service of its type in the world. We owe as a nation great thanks to Horace Plunkett uh, for many reasons. I think we're all familiar with the contribution he made in the area of cooperation, but he was also the driving force behind the establishment of these advisory services at the beginning of the 20th century. And it flowed from his initiative to have a Department of Agriculture set up. And when he was 
pursuing that campaign, one of his chief considerations was this uh, public advisory service, which he hoped and intended would be set up in each of Ireland's 32 counties. There would be a team of advisors or instructors, as they were then called, who would work with farmers and would teach farmers how to farm better. And sure enough, when the department was established, almost straight away, within a few years, the advisory service was up and running uh, up and down the country. You have some wonderful case studies in the book and some great stories that come out of these case studies there. Tell me about uh, Galway and uh, the story with the races. Yes. So um, in the book, I wanted I wanted to do many things. So as you alluded to at the outset, I wanted to use this book as a platform, not just to tell the story of the advisory services, which is worth telling in its own right, but also to use it as a platform to tell you know, the, the, the widest possible national story of the development of rural Ireland, specifically in, in the 20th century. But e- equally, I didn't want to lose sight of the, the rich local narratives either. And a lot of the source material you see is configured around the local story too. So what I've done in the book is I've inputted 12 county case studies throughout, uh, from, from throughout the 20th century. So I rotate between counties as I go through the chronology. And I focused on my own county, Galway, at the beginning of the book, at the fir- during the first part of the, of the 20th century. And the county committees of agriculture, which managed the advisory service at a local level, they had a great degree of autonomy. So uh, they, you know, um, had it within their power really to be independent fiefdoms. But that didn't apply to the hiring and firing of instructors. So there was a, a cause celeb in Galway where um, an instructor was appointed to the head position by the county committee, but then that was vetoed at a national level. And this was a source of embarrassment to the County Committee of Agriculture, especially because the instructor in question didn't do the honourable thing and just disappear. He fought his case. So anyway, it transpired purely coincidentally that he was to have a hearing before the county committee at the same time, around the same time as the Galway races. So the some of the uh, some of the, the more astute members of the county committee engineered it, engineered it in such a way that his hearing would be on the day that the race had started, knowing full well that nobody would have the appetite to uh, to, to explore his case too thoroughly because everybody was so eager to get out of the city and out to Ballybrit. Women also feature strongly in the book as well. And again, that's a dimension that uh, I think is significant and that perhaps uh, is often overlooked when people are talking about Ireland in, in this period, in this in these contexts. Yeah. So, I mean, again, it's, it's so incumbent upon us as historians, isn't it, Patrick, to, to rewrite women back into history. And it was, it's, you know, it was my intention in setting out and researching this project that I, I would, you know, try to make sure that I included the, the story of women as, as much as men. But it didn't prove difficult for me because even though in agricultural and rural Ireland, I, I'm not going to claim for a second that women had a kind of a parity of esteem that was denied them in urban settings. Of course, they didn't. I mean, it was in many ways a, a very patriarchal, even misogynistic um, society in, in, in the rural reaches. But by default, so many women, and as I'm sure you and your listeners will appreciate, they were nonetheless, even if they didn't have the deeds of the farms, they were nonetheless the mainstays of, of farm homesteads. So when it came to looking for, for the advisory service to look to, to the people who could be agents for change in the farm enterprise, it was apprehended very early on that they needed to make a beeline for the farming women. They needed to be talking to the farmers wives and daughters. And indeed, uh, right from the outset, uh, one third of the advisory service was female. 
the uh, the poultry and stuff presses, um, they were exclusively female and they were talking exclusively to, to farming women. And they were the ones who achieved most success in transforming the, uh, the, the situation with regard to agriculture at the beginning of the 20th century. So Irish agriculture was in a relatively backward state at the start of the 20th century. That would have changed seismically by the end of the 20th century. And the process began as a consequence of these interactions between these female advisors and farming women. And then as we move to the middle part of the 20th century, uh, these uh, female advisors were recast as farm home management advisors. And even though Officially, they were supposed to be interacting with farming women uh, when it came to things like, for instance, home improvement, you know, uh, in, in, you know, installing freezers and so forth. They were at the same time talking to them about, about budgeting, about financial planning. And that was so crucial to driving the, the transformation of rural Ireland, moving us away from the subsistence model to more towards a more commercial orientation. Very good, Romy. Well, congratulations on the book. It's called Developing Rural Ireland, A History of the Irish Agricultural Advisory Services, published in hardback by uh, Wordwell, the author, Mihol O'Faherty. And Mihol, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you once again, Patrick. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History, history on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. On the 21st of June 1798, 20,000 men, women and children found themselves trapped on a hill outside Enniscorthy County, Wexford, facing a crown force of some 15,000 troops, led by no less than four generals and 16 officers. It was the dying days of a rebellion that had shaken British rule in Ireland to its core, and a new collection of essays explores that last stand. It's called Vinegar Hill, The Last Stand of the Wexford Rebels of 1798. It's published in paperback by Four Courts Press. The editors are Ronan O'Flaherty and Jackie Hines. And uh, Ronan and Jackie, you're both very welcome to the show tonight. Thank you very much. Thanks, Patrick. It's great to be on the show. Maybe, Jackie, I might begin with you. And let's talk about this uh, research project, the Longest Day Research Project. Talk about your work and and, and what you're investigating and, and discovering. Well, as you mentioned, Patrick, the uh, research project which took place, it was over four years uh, of research, uh, was to investigate what exactly had happened uh, on Vinegar Hill on the 21st of June, 1798. This was a build-up of a rebellion that had started in County Westford on the 26th of May with the Battle of Owlers. Uh, And then a number of battles had taken place throughout the county that had seen the rebels or the United Irishmen initially holding the central part of the county. And then, unfortunately, the tide turned against them and the Crown forces then managed to, to, to reclaim most of the county, ending ultimately on Vinegar Hill, on the 21st of June, when um, their their intention was to completely annihilate what was left of the United Irishmen and the rebel and the rebellion that was taking place in County Westford. So that was what the research project hoped to look at. Um, and as mentioned, it was a multidisciplinary team that took part uh, in the research project that included archaeologists, historians, folklorists, um, architectural consultants, um, and with the support of Westford County Council, primarily, this was initially their um, their idea, their brainchild, and, and I was uh, privileged to be involved in that. But so the Heritage Council, uh, the Department of Environment, Heritage and Local Government, the Discovery Programme, and we were really honoured to have um, Professor Tony Pollard from the Centre of Battlefield Archaeology in Glasgow, and he's world-renowned in this area. Um, so 
a whole team that came together to try and figure out what had happened at, at what we considered to be the most significant battle of the 1798 rebellion, but the last major battle in County Wexford and the last major battle of the Crown forces on Irish soil. Ronan, it really was an extraordinary project and as Jackie said, a really multidisciplinary project and you do get very different insights when you apply these other approaches from, say, archaeology or architecture or folklore uh, or so on, that, that it's all these different perspectives and different expertises and, and, and a different picture of, of 1798 and Wexford emerges. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and we were privileged to work with so many uh, people, both largely volunteers uh, and consultants uh, who ultimately became volunteers because they gave us so much of their own time, uh, like um, Damien Shields and James Bonsall and uh, and others, and Cotswold Archaeology, who went and, and did the, the metal detection for us. So, so many people contributed uh, to this in, in different ways. And yes, when you get this done like this in a multidisciplinary fashion, each one feeds off the other. So the historical sources were able to go and inform us on well, where should we start looking for particular information in relation to the attack on the hill. Uh, the historical sources also uh, helped guide us then to where might we find or, or start looking for mass graves because obviously given a limited budget you can't geophys the entire hill. You need to try and narrow things down. So we have the geophys people talking to the historians. We have the architectural historians then advising us uh, in relation to what was happening in the town at the time and then identifying first the notorious rebel prison of Beale's Barn, which was believed to be gone uh, since 1798, apparently, um, but which we discovered intact, standing on a, a local farmstead. Uh, so all these people working together were able to go and feed into I suppose, to the, the big effort, which was on the metal detection and on the geophysics, which are the ones that really started producing the strong archaeological evidence and new information, information that didn't exist before. So, Jackie, let's talk about some of the findings then, because there is this different perspective and you get an insight into those that were fighting on both sides. You get an insight into the role of women in the conflict. Uh, there's interesting folklore material. What was it that struck you? Because you've written about some of the oral histories that have emerged, uh, that emerged from it. And, and it does give a much more nuanced uh, picture of, of the fighting. It is, and as Ronan said, the folk tradition, the historical tradition, the primary sources, the secondary sources all come together to essentially reinforce each other and provide us with a direction as to where we need to look. So if people are, are if people have bought a copy of the book, the first thing I would say to them to do is to go to the diary of Jane Barber. She's a 15-year-old child at the time. Her father um, is killed as they try to flee the rebels in the first battle of, of Enniscorthy. The, the, the information that she provides and the detail she provides is quite harrowing, um, but gives a remarkable insight into the town in rebellion. Um, she talks about seeing her father and then she doesn't see him anymore, going back to look for his body, being sent to Vinegar Hill as prisoners, her mother has a six-week-old baby. There, she is one of six children. Her mother has a six-week-old baby whom she leaves on Vinegar Hill in her distress and her anxiety and her terror of what's happening. And they have to go back to Vinegar Hill, which is a rebel camp at the time, for to get the baby back. 
her words speak beyond what any of us can can even imagine about the rebellion. But the archaeology then comes in and shows and highlights what has gone on on the hill. And I know from the investigations, we can see lines of firing by uh, Crown forces, those particularly there with General Dundas and General Lake. And you can see from the artifacts where the men have lined up, fired, been given the command to step forward another number of cases, fire again, and we can see impacted musket balls, musket balls that have been dropped. And it's at that point that archaeology, history, folklore come together and they speak very clearly what happened on the hill that day and the days before and the days afterwards. So those are the things that speak the most to me. Really powerful there. Ronan, when you look at all of the evidence, when you look at the, I suppose, the, the equipment, the, the weaponry that the, the, that the British forces had, was a, a British victory and an Irish defeat inevitable? Uh, I think yes. Uh, I, I think that I, I think that's very much the case. It was always going to be the case, and they knew it themselves. The United Army, when they were on that hill, uh, they stayed on the hill because there were so many people there that if they left the hill, they would leave them defenceless. Uh, they could have left the hill. Uh, it was their inclination to leave the hill. Uh, there were suggestions that they should move to a guerrilla operation, move up to the Wicklow Hills and fight that way. Because you know when you've got the greatest army that's been seen in Ireland in a century uh, with uh, a commander-in-chief of the quality of General Lake, and then you have up to 16 general officers beneath him, you have 13 to 15,000 men. These are uniformed troops. You have a minimum of 26 pieces of artillery. You have a wagon train, or rather a baggage train, that's up to seven kilometres long, snaking through the countryside. This is monumental. And you can imagine what it's like when you're standing on the hill there and you've got very little ammunition. You've got damn all for your bits of ordnance, your cannon that you do have on the hill. You've got mostly pikes. And you can see this because you're on the high ground. You can see them start to snake in around you that you know we're being surrounded. And at this stage, they know also, remember, there's no mobile phones, there's no contact with the rest of the, 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 the country. It's taken a long time for them to realise we're alone here. Nobody else has risen. Or if they have risen, they have been completely obliterated. We're the last men standing, literally. Uh, and they know there is nobody to come and help them. So, yeah, I think it must have been very clear to the people on the hill that this was only going one way. And finally, what is the legacy of the project? And indeed, what is the status of the hill today? What condition is it in? And and does any work need to be done to make sure it is uh, uh, preserved as a, a proper historical site? Uh, you asked there, Patrick, about the, uh, the, the, the legacy. I think one of the other legacies that this project has is the legacy of example to go and show uh, how you can apply uh, a multidisciplinary approach like this uh, to other battlefields in Ireland. I mean, there was great work done by the Battlefield um, Project, which was set up um, by the by the government, uh, by the National Monument Service, and they identified key battlefields around the country. But this study, which built upon that, has shown that if you bring all these different strands together, you can be really, really efficient with what you're doing. Because I think what we found, we found the, the richest battlefield ever investigated in Ireland, we have found uh, mass graves uh, on, on the hill, the locations for them, very precisely pre- because we have linked together the historians and the archaeologists 
I'm the archaeological specialist as well, a geophys specialist. Uh, so uh, part of this legacy, I think, would be for people to pick up this book and look at it and see, I, I think we could apply this elsewhere. So hopefully people will do that as well. Wonderful. Well, the book is called Vinegar Hill, The Last Stand of the Wexford Rebels of 1798. It's published in paperback by Four Courts Press. The editors are Ronan O'Flaherty and Jackie Hines. And Ronan, Jackie, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you, Patrick. We'll be back. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. Mark Catesby was a celebrated 18th century English artist, explorer, naturalist and author. And during his lifetime, science was poised to shift from a world of amateur virtuosi to one of professional experts. And his life, his letters and his extraordinary work can now be found in a brilliant new book, Illuminating Natural History, The Art and Science of Mark Catesby. It's published in hardback by the Paul Mellon Centre for Studies in British Art. The author is Henrietta McBurney. And Henrietta, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, very good to be here. Can you tell our listeners about Mark Catesby? Because there are so many different dimensions to his life and his career, from being an artist to being an explorer, his love of nature, his writings, and the fact that, you know, he's someone who who not only was able to to produce these great works, he was prepared to go off and travel around the world to to make these discoveries. Yes, well, uh, he was truly a pioneer. He was born and brought up in Suffolk uh, in East Anglia, and he seems not to have been to university. He went to a good uh, grammar school, probably Felsted School, and he had a good classical education, as was normal for for those days. He didn't proceed to university, which his brothers did. They were both trained in the law, and uh, they were at Queen's College in Cambridge. But he seems from a very early age to have wanted, well, to have been interested in natural history and perhaps decided that actually a university training wasn't going to teach him very much. Added to which, in East Anglia, was a circle of highly um, erudite uh, naturalists, including the great John Ray, the father of natural history, who lived just a few miles away from where Catesby was born in Sudbury, Suffolk. And Catesby seems to have gone and sat at the feet of this great naturalist from when he was a small boy uh, and uh, learnt about collecting and about publishing books and about botany generally. And he also met Samuel Dale, who was John Ray's protégé and later his executor, who was a pharmacist and a, and a, 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 um, a doctor. And like many people sort of multi-talented, multi-polymaths um, at that time. He was also a gardener and an antiquarian. He, uh, so he had access to these, these learned people, and that may have been why he didn't proceed to university. However it was, he clearly was um, so fascinated by the natural world and perhaps encouraged by those two particular people, Ray and, and Dale, that he decided he wanted to go further afield to an unexplored country where he could examine um, the natural world and uh, collect specimens. And so he went off. His sister had married the uh, secretary to the governor of, of Virginia, and he w- accompanied her and two of her children to Williamsburg in um, 
1712, and he stayed for seven years. This was just a personal visit, if you like, but he had his own agenda, and he stayed for seven years. And he learned uh, about how to collect in the wild, and he collected. He sent back plants and seed, living plants and seeds and other specimens to his friends in England. And all the while, he was painting, drawing and painting. When he came back to London, or rather to, South, uh, to um, East Anglia, he, Samuel Dale, was, he, he showed his, his plants and his, his watercolours to Samuel Dale, who then got in touch with the leading botanist in, in London, who was called William Sherrard. And William Sherrard was a fellow of the Royal Society, which at that time was the, the centre of, of, well, it was the earliest scientific society in Europe, and it was the centre for all things scientific. And what happened was that William Sherrard decided that Catesby was uh, the ideal person to send on a trip to collect for the purposes of the Royal Society. So he raised... Uh, money from amongst a group of sponsors, noblemen and garden owners and doctors and all sorts. And Catesby was sent off this second time to South Carolina, which was a, a newer colony, uh, less inhabited, or less inhabited, inhabited by colonials, but of course there were Native American tribes uh, in plenty. And he was based in Charleston, South Carolina, and he explored, and he spent three to four years there exploring and collecting, basically for his, spence, his sponsors. But he had his own agenda, which was to put the material that he was assembling towards a book on the natural history of the area. So that was sort of going in parallel to collecting for his often quite demanding sponsors, which, who included um, Sir Hans Sloane, who was building his enormous museum and, and others. And he, uh, he was asked by Hans Sloane to, to, to send him watercolours too. And Catesby said, look, I, I, I need to keep my watercolours entire, he said, so that they can be more useful in a book. So he was doing all that. And then he spent a, a, probably about nine months in the Bahama Islands, studying the, um, the, the, the fish, fish and, uh, and underwater life, and then, and obviously more plants. And then he went back to England, and this is the dates of his being there were 1722 to 1726, and he, he went, went back to London. And he spent the rest of his life in London working on this material, putting it together uh, against many odds, not least that his sponsors decided that they had everything they wanted for their collections, and so he could do it on his own. So he couldn't afford to have his watercolours engraved on the continent where the best engravers were, and so he taught himself to etch, which was an easier form of engraving uh, because you draw with a needle directly onto a copper plate. And he taught himself, he succeeded in that, and he uh, etched all the plates. In the end, there were 220. And we don't know how many copies of the book were made, but probably in the region of 200. We've identified probably about 100. And he died then not long after completing this huge work. So an extraordinary story of somebody who set out to 
do something. It probably became a much bigger enterprise while he was in the field, and as these ideas and as what he saw inspired him further, he decided to make a book, which is an enormous book. It's a, it's a um, folio size, two big volumes, fit for for, for gentlemen's libraries, not, not, not a book to read in bed. And he successfully sold it by subscription, funded it, and he then completed it and then died not so long afterwards. A remarkable story, and as you say, a remarkable book, you know, described at the time as magnificent and an ornament for the finest library in the world. Can we talk about his 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 him as an as a naturalist and and I suppose his his empathy and his understanding for animals, for birds, the way he believed the colours were so important for capturing them, that he took special care to capture the gestures of of them, that he seemed to have a remarkable insight and empathy when it came to when it came to animals and birds. Y- yes, I think he did. He, uh, I suppose, plants were his. I don't want to, want to say first interest, but they were clearly what his sponsors wanted. Well, before on his first trip, which was a seven-year trip, it was what his friends wanted for their gardens. So he started with plants and then realised. Well, he saw in what he would have described as the wilderness. Of course, it wasn't really a wilderness, but for him it was large tracts of, of un, uninhabited or inhabited by indigenous people's country. And he saw, if you like, unspoiled nature. So plants and animals, in the interaction of plants and animals, the, the natural environment, or what we would call the ecology. And... He was intrigued by he was a he really was a naturalist by inclination. Some of his descriptions remind me of David Attenborough in in his total absorption of watching ants and uh, spiders and dung beetles. There's a wonderful description of his watching dung beetles for hours and rolling their little balls of dung in different directions and helping each other and all this sort of thing. But he also, as you said, he talks about colours a lot. Colours were very important to him. And he has a wonderful, well, I use this quote partly as the title of my book, Illuminating Natural History. So that is a quote from Catesby. And I'll just read this quote because it, it, it says something about, it says quite a lot about his working methods. The illuminating of natural history is so important to a perfect understanding of it that I may aver a clearer idea may be conceived from the figures of animals and plants in their proper colours than from the most exact description without them. In other words, he thought that images were more important than long, verbose descriptions. But that, that title, I used that quote in my title because it also sums up the balance uh, between art and science in his work. Uh, illumination, meaning painting. And and then the science and natural history, and I and as during my my uh, career as an art curator and art historian, I've always been fascinated by the balance of science and art, and it, this this sentence, the illuminating of natural history is so important to a perfect understanding, um, is sort of seems to sum up that 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 balance in in his work. 
Very good. Well, Henrietta, congratulations on the book and thanks so much for talking to us tonight about the art and science of Mark Catesby. The book is called Illuminating Natural History. It's published in hardback by the Paul Mellon Centre for Studies in British Art. The author, Henrietta McBurney. And Henrietta, thanks so much. A a great pleasure. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History History. on News Talk. And that brings us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to everyone who put tonight's show together, Marisa Sullivan, my producer, and Peter Malloy on sound. So join us next week on News Talk. We've been Talking History. Good night. (laughs) 